You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. This message is from our series on Romans, presented by Steve Coleman. Well, this week uh, we're starting a new series, or coming back to a series, Romans. We spent um, a good bit of time going through Romans 1 through 8 a good while ago. We're now picking things back up with chapter 9. This section in 9 through 11 is about the Jews. Uh, but let me try to give you just a real quick context of where we are. In Romans 1 through 3, uh, Paul was talking about all were under condemnation. Uh, a, a few verses from that section. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may mean, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but in their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul very carefully went over both Jews and Gentiles and talked about how everybody missed the boat. Everybody was part of this group, all of humanity, affected by sin, under condemnation. In 4 and 5, he went talked about salvation and how it's obtained by believing God. Two verses from that section. God will credit righteousness for us who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Romans 5. Since we now have been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? So we have the group of people that if they believe, they are now out from under God's wrath and placed in the body of Christ. And Paul uh, makes a great point of emphasizing that here in Romans. You're going to hear that theme and other themes continue to be repeated as we move on 8 through 15 or 16. Uh, the third section, Romans 6 through 8, we had a number of Sundays on that where it talked about our freedom from the law, our freedom from sin as members of the body of Christ, and how secure we are under His grace and mercy. And Paul wrote, Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, for sin shall no longer be your master, because you're not under the law, but under grace. And he said right toward the end of 8, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he has that long passage saying nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Now, Romans was written as one book, one letter. And Paul intended this letter to flow. It's very easy with a book as large as this and a book that covers so many subjects, and we're going to see that moving forward. Uh, it's very easy to sort of think in compartmentalized terms. But we've got to keep this backdrop here. And Paul helps us in chapter 9 with the way he handles it, to remember the backdrop that we're in. Well, against this brilliant truth that's expressed in Romans 1 through 8, this marvelous salvation that we have, uh, the question comes up, 
And Paul knows it comes up in the minds of his readers. Well, what about the Jews? A lot of them, a lot of his readers were Jews and had come to know the Lord. There were still a lot, I'm sure, a lot of their family members, people they knew. There's a great deal of the Jewish community that hadn't accepted Christ. So the question is, well, what about the Jews? And Paul says early in nine how what how deep his sorrow was, and he sort of explains it here in uh verses three through five. Because he talks about the fact, gee, with the Jews, that's where sonship really originated historically. God called Abram out, and Abraham became the patriarch, first patriarch of a number in uh and and that they were considered the chosen people. They got prompt covenants with God. Uh, they received the law. It was through Israel that the law came. They had the temple worship, the sacrifice system, through which they were to approach God. There's a little more Paul says about that at the end of chapter 9, and we'll hear it at the end. They had the patriarchs, and through them came the line of the Messiah. They had all these privileges, these opportunities, these blessings, and yet they're not there. Paul even says, I wish I could be cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own race. If Israel could be saved, Paul says, I'm willing to be cut off to make that happen. So having expressed that, he uses the familiar pattern of questions and answers. Now that he's identified with his readers who were Jews, and of course Paul was a Jew as well, but now that he's identified with them, he can then pose these questions, which is part of his style in some of his letters, uh, Romans in particular, where he's sort of posing questions that he knows are coming up in the minds of the readers. So, question one. Has God's word failed? The heart of this question is, look, you read the Old Testament, and now all of a sudden, it seems, it's like, oh, no, 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 you believe in in God. And that gets you salvation. And uh, so what, what has happened here? Has God's word failed? And Paul answers this pretty directly. Well, no. And he points out the fact not all descendants of Israel, are Israel. He points out, uh, not Israel or Jacob, but he goes back to the early patriarchs, and he he basically says, think about it. Uh, Covered under Abraham's specific promises for for God's people, uh, those promises passed on to Isaac, not to Ishmael. You go down one generation, and he talks about God revealing to Rebekah, you've got two nations in your womb, and the older will serve the younger. Esau became Edom, not Israel. So not everybody who is born an Israelite is a true uh, child of Abraham. Now, he went into this in, in great detail, if you remember, earlier in that section of 4 and 5 and talked about how uh, it is by faith and not because of birth, not because of following the law that one became. Now, Paul throws in a, a statement here. You can read it 
toward, uh, you can read it in verse 13, but he, he includes this thing. As it's written, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I hated. Well, now, that's, a, that's going to raise questions in people's minds. And Paul goes on, sort of sets up his next question. Well, wait a minute. If, if before they were born, God's saying, I love Jacob, but I hated Esau. What's that about? It's God unjust? And he gives a little bit of a cryptic answer, right, in 14, 15. He says, no, it doesn't depend, therefore, on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Okay, Paul, not following you completely, but let's stick with him because as the, the entire chapters develop, he sets all of this in context, and we'll see. Just like we have to deal with the book of Romans as a whole, you have to deal with this entire argument as a whole to understand. And then he uses the example of Pharaoh. An example well known to all the Jewish readers. In fact, well known to all of us. That story of the Ten Commandments. Not Ten Commandments. What am I thinking? The story of the Exodus prior to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Plagues that God brought on Egypt that got Israel released from bondage there. And, and we, talked, we took a glimpse into chapter 9 uh, when we finished this last series. And we talked about the fact you have all these times that Moses goes to Pharaoh and it says, uh, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Then you notice, as you look through some of those times, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, what's that about? Uh, these. Okay, what, what, what he actually says here in chapter 9, God, uh, well, I'll just go ahead and skip here. But uh, Exodus... During that, that period, I have noted the, the chapter and verse for the times when it says Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The very interesting thing here is that two of these incidents, two of the times it's stated, those two right there, Pharaoh sinned again, he and his officials hardened their hearts, and then God talking to Moses later said, I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials. They're referring to the identical incident. So this isn't a case of sometimes God said, yeah, I'm hardening you, and other times he let Pharaoh harden his heart. There's some cross-connection in the way we think of what God hardening and Pharaoh hardening means. Who really did it? Paul introduces this. See if I can go back. There we go. Um, and, and he says uh, in chapter 9 here, quoting Exodus 9.16, his message to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name be, may be proclaimed in all the earth. Well, that certainly came true. God, um, God's name was proclaimed in all the earth. So how do we understand what happened? You know, we, we have the wrong illustration in our minds sometimes. Sometimes we think of God as up in heaven and sort of moving people around like pieces on a chessboard. So God, here, 
hardening Pharaoh's heart. There you go. Let him capture that bishop. We don't need that on the board anymore. And so on. And I think we have the wrong illustration in our minds. At least it doesn't seem to fit as well in this case. So let me tell you the story of a bacteria. I was talking to a microbiologist about processes in the lab and tests that that go on. And uh, he was noting to me one process that is very useful for somebody in the lab. He says, when you suspend bacteria in the water and then send 10,000 volts through it for a millisecond or so, a useful thing happens. 99.9% .9 of the bacteria die right away. So you have one-tenth of one percent that are still alive. And about one in a million of that group left alive will pick up some DNA that you added before the shock. If you put a marker on that DNA, like resistance to an antibiotic or a gene that makes the bacteria glow in the dark, uh, then the bottom, uh, then you have something very useful that you can use. You can take those bacteria and grow them and, and do your experiments. The bottom line is that you don't force a single bacteria to pick up that DNA. They just do what they do naturally, the ones that survive. So if you use billions of bacteria, you're assured that a few of them will survive and pick up your DNA. And now you have some bacteria with the genetic marker you need to do your work. In a similar way, I believe God has set up the human race so that people are where they need to be. The people then act as they act, and they do what they're going to do. They're going to say what they're going to say, make decisions that they're going to make. And in doing so, God's purposes are accomplished. Just like that few bacteria that reliably pick up that DNA. I think there's a clue in what God said about Pharaoh. For this cause, I raised you up. He didn't say, for this cause, I hardened your heart. Or for this cause, I made you do that. He said, I raised you up. What's that referring to? Him being Pharaoh at that place, at that time, for this purpose. You see, there were a lot of boys born in Egypt. Only one was born to be Pharaoh. It's a real fascinating thing. It just goes to show what happens when you actually read the stories. But in, in looking at this verse that talked about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, if you read that, that occurs right during the plague of the hail, where if you remember, giant hailstorm, the worst storm Egypt had ever seen, comes and this giant hail kills the animals and the servants that are out in the fields. Wait, if you look in that chapter... It says, after Moses' pronouncement, that some of the officials in Pharaoh's courts hurried to pull in their, their cattle and their servants because they feared God. Other officials didn't. And, of course, Pharaoh hardened his heart. So if one of those officials that did fear God and pulled these animals in, uh, if he had been Pharaoh, may not, it wouldn't have worked out the same way. Well, God made sure he wasn't the guy that was Pharaoh at that time. It doesn't explain everything, but I think it's a helpful way 
to also think about what God's sovereignty means because it, all, it explains why I had a pretty free choice this morning of whether I'm eating Wheaties or Cheerios or something else. I didn't stress about, oh, am I getting the right one? I've got to, you know, God direct me to get the right cereal. We make decisions. We make choices. And we're responsible. Well, the next question that Paul says, and he says, one of you might say to me, why does God blame us? If that's the case, if God hardens Pharaoh's heart, why does God blame us? Well, wrong question, or epic fail. <laughs> missed it entirely. This person missed. It's the wrong question. He goes on to say, who are you, O oh man? The, the, the clay to talk to the potter in this way. He's saying, no, you're not thinking of this correctly. And that, that you missed it. And if, if they didn't get that new perspective, that different perspective on Pharaoh, he's sort of saying, you missed the boat earlier on. You see, it's not, it's not a matter of who I'm going to blame, who hasn't improved from yesterday. Read chapters Romans 1, read chapters 1 through 3, you can almost hear Paul saying, because there, I'm telling you, the human race is corrupted. And as the way we think isn't the way God thinks. Isaiah 55 talks about that. We cannot understand God and his ways. They're inscrutable. And no illustration is going to nail it 100%. But Paul goes on and says, okay, wrong question. But what if, he says. And let me read that set of verses to you. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction. What if he did this in order to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he called? So, why blame us? God's at work. It isn't about, you haven't improved from yesterday. The imagery is, reminds me of the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Lots and lots of high schoolers and college age people and young adults went down over the, those months, Melanie was one of them, to uh, do cleanup. And one of the horrid jobs of cleanup was refrigerators and freezers that had been without power for months. All right, so you have all that nice meat you bought in butcher's paper and stuffed in that freezer. Three, several months in Louisiana warmth, and it, it's no longer recognizable. It's completely gone. It's corrupted. You know, and this is, this is not about kind of, well, how much ketchup and mustard do we have to add to sort of cover this thing? No. It's not, not, well, let's use it in a casserole. Nobody will ever know. If they don't know right off, they'll know about a half an hour later. Corrupted. 
completely gone. That's the context, that's the view that Paul says we, we have to realize when we start asking questions like, is God just? He had a human race that was completely corrupted, fit for the garbage can, and a garbage can that's located a long way from the front door. But God, what if God put, put up patiently with the human race in order to have His glory known, in order to have His power known, and that's the imagery. That's why I like the bacteria example rather than the chessboard. God did not throw humanity away. In fact, what He did was, wasn't a matter of dumping enough ketchup or mustard on us or saying, gee, you got to do better. If you do well enough, you'll be acceptable to me. Now, the only thing that would work is exchange. God exchanged His, if I can use the term, fresh, clean, perfect righteousness for our corrupted, stinky, rotted righteousness. And that's the only way that He could offer grace and mercy is by exchanging with us. So He took on Himself that corruption, that sin. It says Christ became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. All right, well, Paul also said in this, you know, what if God, he talks about making himself known, and he talks about making his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory. He's placed you and I in the right place. We were born in the right century. We were born in the right household at, at this time in July, particularly on July 21. You're sitting right here in this room. And this is what he prepared ahead of time. Unlike that lab person who doesn't know which of the bacteria are going to pick up the DNA, God not only, not only knows that there's a group that will reliably repent and believe in him, but he knows who we all are. So his arrangement allows us and the world to do what they're going to do, make the decisions they're going to make uh, in order to advance his glory, to show His grace to the entire world and the riches of His glory to us. And that's what Paul is, is working at getting across to us here. He asks one more question. And I'd promise that he would come back to this notion of Israel and all the work they did with the sacrifices and so on. And he does that with his last question. Oh, that, that's the better picture of God. I couldn't resist putting that in because I love this painting so much uh, that when they had the chessboard bit on it, I hated to, to leave you with that image. Uh, but it illustrates, and what Paul's talking about here is that God did the reaching out. That's part of that choice that he's done. He's reached out to man. I don't know what the exact correct interpretation of this painting is. There are other people much smarter about that, but it appears to me that God's straining and really working at this. And Adam is, that'd be great, a little touch would be nice, but, you know, whenever. And uh, that does depict for me my cold heart sometimes toward him. Okay, the fourth question, what should we say then? And he goes on and says, 
What should we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they, Israel, pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the, quote, stumbling stone. Jesus. So even though the sacrificial system, the temple worship, all those things were to lead Israel to faith, they did those things, but focused on, look at the good thing I can do to make myself acceptable to God. That's the difference. They missed the boat that way. Not all of them did. We read in Romans itself, chapter 4, where Paul makes a great example of Abraham who believed God and it was counted uh, to him for righteousness. And you know, that's an exact quote from that passage in Genesis. So there it was for, for Israel to see in the Torah. The right answer. Well, Paul's walked us through a more challenging content in chapter 9 here than in, in many of his other chapters. He proposed several questions related to why there uh, seems to be a major change between the Old Testament and New Testament with this emphasis on the Gentiles and the world. Paul explained each in turn, showing how Paul, God, was always to include the Gentile. God places people without violating their wills so that his purposes get, get accomplished. And God wants to display his glory for us and in us. At the end, he brings the discussion back around to a theme he constantly brings up in Romans. Faith, belief, is what God is looking for. Simple truth of this chapter leads us to conclude that we're here in life for a purpose. That we've been placed by God. And that includes, but it's not limited to, New Hope Chapel. I keep saying you're here and that's the purpose. But you're also where you are in life. The, the job you're in, the neighbors you have, the family you have, all those things. You're there for his purpose. That, uh, and the result is glory. He wants to give us his glory. Our prayer each day should include our recommitment to God and our request for guidance on how our words and action can fulfill God's purposes. As we taught in the last series, life in the body. His purpose for us at any given moment could be as simple as forgiving someone who's offended or hurt us, speaking the truth in love where it's needed, encouraging someone we don't usually talk to, or doing a loving act in complete anonymity. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's New Hope podcast. Chapel. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.